Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Virginia Lass. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Arkansas. She is Professor Emerita of History at Missouri Southern State University, and presently she serves as the president of the Board of Trustees for the State Historical Society of Missouri. She has authored, co-authored, and edited five books, including Love and Power in the 19th Century, The Marriage of Violet Blair, and our focus for today, Bridging Two Eras, the autobiography of Emma Newell Blair, 1877 to 1951. Welcome to our Missouri, Virginia. Thanks, Sean. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's nice to get to talk about a theme that happened several years ago. Now, in, in looking at, at this autobiography of Emily Newell Blair, talk about the origins of how you came to be connected with this as an, as an edited volume in a book project. The story of this autobiography is kind of a long and frustrating one, uh, especially for Emily Newell Blair. And I think I'll start there with how she started it. After she uh, got off the Democratic National Committee, she started writing her autobiography, and that would have been in late 28 or uh, 1929. And she finished it in the late 1920s. She was a published author already. By 1931, she was ready to publish it, and she submitted it for publication. And she called it transcript of a lucky life. It was kind of typical of the way uh, women wanted to think about their lives at the time. Life just kind of happened to her and she was lucky to be where she was. Uh, nothing that where she took charge and did something, but it was rejected. And she then, revised it, submitted again. It was still rejected. And she wrote later that it was rejected because the publishing company just thought the middle of the depression was not a good time to bring out this book. So in 37, she revised it again, called it our droll generation. Third time, rejected. <laughs> So it went into the attic. In 1949, her granddaughters found the transcripts in the attic and they began working on it. By this time, well, she had had a stroke in 1944. So what her granddaughters did with it is kind of unclear, but it again got rejected. Back into the attic, sat there till 1981. 
when her son, Newell Blair, uh, tried to get it published. He had secretaries working on it, typing, doing all kinds of who knows what. And that's when I got involved. He came to Joplin and visited one of his, well, she was a relative by marriage, Carolyn Blair. And he was telling her about his attempts to get this published. And she suggested that he contact me. Uh, she had known me since my childhood, was a friend of my mother's, knew I was a professional historian, had published before. So he su she suggested me. Newell contacted me and that's how I got started in it. Well, all, all of Emily Newell Blair's papers are in the Western Reserve Historical Museum, or, uh, yeah, museum in Cleveland where her granddaughter lives. So it was arranged that I would go and look at the papers and Emily generously offered me to stay at her house, which I did, which is the nicest accommodations I've had on any research trip and anywhere. They just treated me wonderfully. But when I got there, the autobiography was in 20 archival boxes, just pages of manuscript. You couldn't tell what had been done in 1931, in 37, in 50, in 81. They were just typed pages. And then Newell had two more boxes. So there was really no original document. The only complete document there was, was what Newell had done in 1950, uh, 1981, excuse me, I got the wrong year. So that's kind of where I started with that, but then went back to the original pages going through them. It was an interesting process. Well, in thinking about, about that, as you're going through boxes of materials related to the, the autobiography, not knowing which version of it it is when it was written, I mean, how do you contextualize that? I mean, what other sources or even places you have to visit to kind of put what she is writing about into context for you to be able to edit that? Well, there were all kinds of other writings, published writings that she had done through the years. So just reading that gave me a pretty good idea of how she felt about things and then her letters to other people and the papers of ever other suffrage leaders, of people of the Democratic Party, and there are tons of other sources also. But then what she wrote uh, in some of the introductory matters that I know, knew that she had written gave me some hints on what might be original and what might not. There were several instances where the version that Newell gave me differed significantly from what um, appeared in earlier versions. So I knew that there had been significant places where things were left out. 
things that weren't quite so positive for Joplin or Carthage or other things that I, I knew I had to go through every Lovin page that was in those 20 archival boxes and compare them. You know, I kind of started with what Newell's 1981 version was and then went back. I can give you an example of um, what I mean in the version that Newell had in when she was talking about um, returning to Joplin after her period in the Democratic National Committee, 1928-29. Uh, in his version, it said, it was not easy to go back to Joplin, but I belonged to a club which has always stuck by me. I had friends and I set to work to make a life for myself there. Now, in another rendering between those two sentences, after she said, it was not easy to go back to Joplin. In an earlier version, she said, I did not see myself sinking into a life of domesticity and it offered nothing else, but neither did I see myself breaking the bonds that made it my home. I knew my husband was aware of my feelings, not one to accept a sacrificial wife. He was not happy over it. My sister Ella had moved us before I came into another house. She'd even curtained it for me. I was not as grateful as I might have been. Joplin did not have any more, did not any more know what to do with me than I how to fit in. I was a maverick, half admired, a little suspected, and somewhat feared. And then this earlier vision version continues. But I belonged to a club, which had always stuck by me and went on from there. That whole section was left out in the version Newell gave me. So it made me think there must be other instances where that sort of thing had happened. And so uh, I spent a lot of time trying to find Emily's voice and leaving out, well, not leaving out, but it was really adding in other things. I didn't find instances where family members or other people had added a great deal. There was one comment in, I don't even remember where it was now, but a secretary, one of Newell's secretaries had made a note, I made up this chapter title. But other than that, I think the changes mainly were leaving out things. But, you know, the, the document I ended up with was my best judgment of what represented Emily Newell Blair and no one else. So that's kind of the way it went. And it took a long time to make sure every one of those pages had been reviewed and compared to the document that came out. One of the great pleasures of being a historian is where you get to go to research 
and just sitting in the library all day with stacks of manuscripts that not very many people have looked at. Going to the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park was so much fun. Um, Eleanor's papers, Franklin's papers, Molly Dusen's papers, going to the University of Virginia had both Homer Cummings papers and um, Carter Glass papers. And just being in those research areas. And when you go, the only people who really care about something you find that you didn't know before or that nobody really knows are the librarians who work in those repositories. And you get to tell somebody and the somebody you tell is the librarian and they, they really care about it. At Columbia in the Western uh, Manuscripts Collections, there were all kinds of papers. The Kansas City Western Manuscript Collections, St. Louis uh, for suffrage papers, they were wonderful. Edna Gellhorn's papers at Wash U in St. Louis. There were just so many places to go. And um, oh, for suffrage papers, the uh, Women's Studies Collection in the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe and to wander around Harvard for a while. It's all really fun to do. In Cleveland, I had a wonderful time um, working there with the basic manuscripts. So I put a plug in for original research in manuscript collections because it's so much fun. Completely agree. I, I, I love the travel of research and, and the discoveries and, and I appreciate your acknowledgement of, of the hard work of librarians and archivists. And they can get excited and then they think of things they know and point you in directions that you would have never thought of by yourself. And they know their collections. It's just, it's just a pleasure to work with all of them. Thinking about the title, Bridging Two Eras, where does that come from? What is the origin of that? You know, um, that came, that first appeared in the 1937 revision. Um, she had used that phrase in some of her introductory remarks. Um, it didn't get used as the title in 1937, but she used that phrase. And then, um, oh, in 1950, the, the one that the granddaughters worked on, they used uh, Gamma's story. And then it was Newell that brought up this phrase that she had used in 1937. So it was the 1981 that used that. But she had gone on in some introductory material about how she felt her life was bridging two eras, from the Victorian era to the modern era, to before suffrage to after suffrage. She saw herself as one of those people. She wasn't an original suffragist or feminist, but she was a bridge to the modern era. Now we've talked about a lot of things that she's written about, how she saw some things, but, but let's get into who Emily Newell Blair was. Who was she? Well, she was born in Joplin, Missouri in 1877. 
the same year that my grandmother was born. Her family moved to Carthage when she was a girl. She grew up in Carthage, graduated from high school in Carthage in 1894. She went away to Goucher College. So her, her family had moved from Pennsylvania to the Joplin Carthage area because of the mining industry. And they always kind of thought of themselves as Easterners who had moved to the Midwest. And, and it's interesting, she says in her autobiography that she always thought of herself as an Easterner until she went to Goucher and realized she was actually a Midwesterner. But after a year in college, her father died and she had to come home and help take care of her brothers and sisters while her mother tried to keep the business going. So she came home, she spent a summer at, in summer school at the University of Missouri getting qualified to teach. And she did then, she taught in uh, Sarcoxy for a couple of years, 1898 to 1900. Seems to me she had a sixth grade class. I did go to, to Sarcoxy and look into records there. She had 60 students. And it sounded like they were all in one class. Maybe it was two, I don't know, but it was a huge class, but she taught for two years. Then uh, in 1900, she married her classmate from, I don't know when they started school, they graduated from high school together. She married Harry Blair. In, what was it, 1902, they went to Washington, D.C., and he started law school at Columbian College, which later became George Washington University. And it's interesting, she was the one who insisted he go there. Newell, her son, always said that uh, Harry Blair was a very passive person. He was an outstanding lawyer, but I think in many ways, Emily from the beginning kind of led their marriage. She was not aggressive or overly domineering, but she got him to go to Columbia, uh, Columbian College. They came back to Carthage then in 1905, had two children. 1910, she published her first article in Cosmopolitan. Now she always said that, or she did in the early days, that her husband encouraged her to write. Well, I don't know. He was certainly supportive of her always, but I think it was what she wanted to do. And it's interesting, her first articles, well, let me look at this list. The first article she wrote, Letters of a Contented Housewife, Heart of a Wallflower, Evolution of a Lady. Now, those were, Letters of a Contented Housewife was in 1910. 
The Wallflower, Evolution of a Lady, those were 1911. Evolution of a Lady was in Harper's Bazaar. So Cosmopolitan, Harper's Bazaar, Women's Home Companion. She just sent these off cold as far as I could tell and they got accepted. So she was into writing and writing in national magazines right off. 1913, she becomes president of the Missouri Women's Press Association. She gets involved in the suffrage movement at the local level in the Carthage organization. And by 1915, she's the first editor of the Missouri Woman Suffrage Magazine. She makes contacts at the state level. She just does this stuff. Then World War I came along and Harry volunteered for the YMCA to go to France. And that was a big, big move. When he did that, she ended up in the District of Columbia working for the Women's Committee of the Council of National Defense. By 1918, she had made national connections uh, with suffrage leaders and they knew her ability to write and to organize. So Harry went to France, she went to DC. And of course her world expanded there too on the national level. They come back to Carthage in 1919. 1920, she publishes a history of the Women's Committee. By that time also, women have gained suffrage. She becomes active in the League of Women Voters and is one of the founders of the League of Women Voters. Very quickly, she figures out she belongs in partisan politics. For the suffrage people, for her writing, she had attended conventions of both the Republican and Democratic parties. She had friends. She knew the, the woman leaders in both parties. She becomes active and she decides she is a Democrat and becomes Missouri's in 1921, becomes Missouri's second national committee woman. And that puts her you know, on the national stage. 1922, Cordell asks her to come to the District of Columbia to be what they called the resident committee woman in charge of organizing women. In six months, she had organized 700 Democratic women's clubs. Of course, she didn't do that alone. Women were eager to be organized into clubs. 1922, she was elected vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee. And she was also a founder of the Women's National Democratic Club in DC. She and some other um, women decided Democratic women in the District of Columbia and nationally had no place to go to stay or to gather when they came to the District of Columbia. So, and that organization is still alive. They still have a place in DC. Reelected to the Democratic National Committee in 24, starts working for the 
Good Housekeeping magazine in 26. She did a monthly book review column from 1926 to 33 in Good Housekeeping. And she was also writing for other magazines. She was writing about women's issues. She was writing about politics. She was well known nationally. Uh, in 28, she gets off the Democratic National Committee, uh, wants to devote herself to writing, publishes a couple of novels in the next few years. 32, gets involved in the Roosevelt campaign. Of course, she had known uh, Eleanor Roosevelt for years through suffrage. When he wins, then it gets really interesting because I am pretty convinced that she could have been an assistant secretary of state. Cordell Hall became the secretary of state. She had worked with him on, he was chairman of the Democratic National Committee when she was vice chairman, easily done. She wanted to get a job for Harry. Depression is going on. His law practice was not being very productive. She got him a job as an assistant attorney general in charge of the lands division. She also wanted to move to DC. That secured that for them. So instead of taking a big job for herself, she took a nice job for Harry. Uh, and they moved to DC. She, after that, was appointed to the Consumers Advisory Board and eventually became chairman of that. But it was Harry's job that got them uh, to move to DC. And that's what they did. She continued to write and be active. 1944, she had a stroke. 1951, she died. Wow, so. Well, I appreciate the detail. That, that really provides a, a, a great overview about her entire life and, and all that she was quite active in. Thinking about going back through that, the autobiography and the several, the several boxes and, and all the materials. Mm -hmm. For scholars in general, thinking about a project involving an autobiography and editing of it, what are some key elements of that process that, that are important to think about, especially for when you were doing it yourself? Well, this one was so unusual. Usually you have a product that they have produced. And what you're interested in is, is explaining what they're talking about uh, in doing footnotes, really. Uh, so in doing an introduction, an overview of their life and where they fit into the historical record, uh, identifying every loving person that appears. And all that always has to be done. But the difference with this one was finding Emily's voice and making sure that what appears as part of her autobiography is really what she wrote. So it just intensifies what anybody has to do you have to be familiar with all of their papers and have a pretty good idea of who they were and what their attitudes were and how they viewed the world, how they viewed themselves. 
who their friends really were. And in this case, all of that is just intensified. Fortunately, she kept lots of papers and her families preserved them. So I spent lots of time in the whole collection and then in people she um, worked with, like Eleanor Roosevelt and other Missouri leaders and Cordell Hull and all the other people that she contacted, I needed to go to their papers and find out what they had to say about her, not to her, but to other people, which was really fun, really fun. That's a very good point, uh, thinking about what people say to say to people versus what they write about them later on. I think that's, that's a that's Oh, a absolutely, absolutely. Now, as you're going through the autobiography and you're editing it, what are some key themes that are emerging in her writing that she's focusing on? Well, you know, it, it sounds kind of prosaic, but this whole idea of bridging two eras, she did see herself in that way. And from the early, when she describes her early days, and even to the end, really, she was, she was, she describes herself as a feminist and she certainly was a suffragist, but she's the first to admit, I wasn't one of the early suffragists. The other people came before. She is never a strident feminist that is making demands. She, she's a politician. And she got into the right place with getting into the Democratic Party, into party politics. And the men she worked with always described her as a feminine, I can't remember which one, maybe it was Cordell Hull or um, someone from that era who described her as a very feminine feminist which I thought was really interesting. And she starts out this autobiography. She wants to help women understand, or she wants to help people understand where she was coming from. Oh, there's a, she uses a good phrase, her idea. And a lot of these women who wrote in the early days is, is you have to have some cause or purpose in doing this other than yourself. It's not really to publicize yourself, but it's to help the women coming up or to explain the suffrage movement. And that's really coming from a Victorian background, you know, to explain women. It's, it's not about yourself, it's about other people. In looking at the, the autobiography as a whole and, and all of the writings and, and papers that she went through on, on her life, what's a fact or a life lesson or even a, a, a moment of commentary in her writing that really stuck with you and still sticks with you today? You know, I've thought about that question quite a bit. I, I think it's her, well, one, her writing. She really is a lovely writer. And would that we could all write like she does. 
that stands out. The ability to persevere, I think is a really important thing. She recognized that when she came back to Joplin after 28, that there were lots of people who didn't approve of her. The old guard, you know, she was stepping out of what a woman was supposed to do. An upper middle class woman was supposed to be a homemaker and a uh, take care of her children. And what was she doing running off to DC when she had these children? Well, she had her mother living with her that helped with children. Her children went with her to DC when she did that. But publishing nationally, being active, not just not on the state level, but the national level, being friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, all of that. Uh, how could she be a, a good wife to Harry when she was doing all that stuff? She knew there were a lot of people here who didn't approve of her, but she maintained it. You know, she got her family out of here into DC. This is what she did. But um, how you negotiate that, how you continue to be part of your community and uh, not be offensive, I guess those were lessons. But that you need to go ahead and do what you think your goal is, what you are meant to do. You know, at the end of her autobiography, she wrote, uh, she wrote a lot of interesting things, but um, she wrote about the necessity of working for something greater than yourself. And I think that's what she always kept in mind that she was doing. And it's really interesting that at the end she writes, the young woman of today starts, the young woman of today starts free to be and do what she wishes. She does not have the same concessions to make to respectability, the same compromises between domesticity and marriage. For both she and her husband feel that she has a right to pursue her own outward course if she wishes. I'm not totally convinced that we are there yet, but, um, uh, but we're certainly closer than she was. But it hints at the strain she felt back when she started out and throughout her career probably. So doing something outside yourself, an idea, a concept, doing something for your community, that's where your interest should be and your work should be. I think that's what I take from it. Well, thank you for joining me today, Virginia. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>